You're listening to a special edition of The Central Cast, a place to connect with and listen in on conversations with prominent and respected thinkers, artists, and culture shapers. It's here we dig beneath the surface as we explore philosophy, arts, comedy, theology, and philanthropy within the framework of progressive faith. If you'd like to contribute to the production and expansion of this podcast, or if you'd like more information about the community which creates it, visit www.centralavenuechurch.org. Andre Henry is a writer, speaker, musician, and former pastor with a deep passion for racial justice. He has lectured at universities, worked with community organizers and activists, and organized protests and actions himself. You currently work for ESA, Evangelicals for Social Action. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, that's it. You are the social media manager and contributing editor. Previously, you were a managing editor for Relevant Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre actually spoke earlier this spring at Central. So this is kind of a follow-up interview and dialogue uh, to that conversation. Welcome, welcome, Andre. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, good, good to have you back for another, another dialogue here. Um, I guess I want to begin by asking you this, just jumping right into it. Where do you see the most pernicious aspects of racism and white supremacy on display today? Uh, yeah, you know that's it's hard to answer because it's expressed through like just about every institution in our society. I say just about. I mean. I don't know an institution that where anti-blackness is not expressed, but um, immediately what I think of is our, our criminal justice system mm. because of, so what we do with incarceration and with policing, we violate people's human rights as policy. You know, <laughs> uh, locking people up and uh, having them sit in cells underground where there's no natural light, you know, there's light, there's just no sunlight, you know. Fluorescent light from the bulbs overhead, yeah. You know, and taking away their, their, you know, breaking up their families, separating parents from their children, you know, and the abuse that happens in prisons, the, you know, is something that is, it's just normal and regular. And for those of us who live in mainstream society, we are very, we're, extremely comfortable with kind of just ignoring what happens in the margins of society in that regard, right? And when these people are released from prison, we take away their rights to vote. It's hard for them to find housing and jobs and all these things that we think are our rights as citizens. And so I think that right off the bat, that that is what strikes me as one of the most pernicious things, not to mention this is in some cases, this is actually like if you're lucky enough to go to prison, right? If you don't die in an exchange with a police officer, right? Yeah. yeah. So the, those things off the bat strike me, and that as I'm as I'm talking about it, just more facts about it strike me, like the the fact that in some studies it's been shown that the more the darker your skin uh, is, the more likely that you could receive the death penalty. Or the, yeah. or the more pronounced your phenotype, like the your facial features, if they display more of those 
features that are associated with Africa with being of African descent. Like those have been proven to um, determine or to be a, a factor in whether or not people live or die. You know, when they're being tried, that black people get harsher sentences when they're facing trials, that black people are disproportionately arrested and convicted for crimes that uh, for the same crimes as their white counterparts, you know? So all these things to me, like, just speak very loudly and clearly that this is one of the most violent and, as you said, pernicious ways that I think racism is being expressed in our society. The criminal justice system. Are you familiar with the, um, the podcast Serial? Yes. Um, I just was listening to an episode of that with my wife while we were driving back from Northern California like a week ago. Anyway, um, I, I had never listened to it before. She's she's a big listener of it. But um, something was said on it that was so fascinating. It was interviewing a um, uh, it was a criminal defense attorney who works for the state, and he's been working in the I think the California criminal justice system for about 40 years. And he said that um, something really powerful. Um, and he's he's an older white man. Some I think he's in his 60s at this point. He said uh, in his experience uh, representing, uh, you know, being assigned as counsel to people who can't afford counsel on a regular basis. So he's exposed often to the poorest of the poor. Anyway, he said it never it never hurts to it never hurts to be white in the in the criminal justice system. It never helps to be black. Right. Right. Yeah. Never, never hurts to be white. He said. But it never helps to be black. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And that comes from a white, you know, 60 something uh, year old attorney who's been working in the system for like 40 years. Yeah. Isn't that an awful truth? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't he didn't go further than that. He was just responding to uh, the fact that his client at the time was kind of a, a white girl from a rural area. And he, he said, look, it, it's going to, you know, the, the fact that you're poor uh, he, he was, I guess he was saying doesn't exactly help you, but it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hurt to be white and doesn't help to be black when you're facing uh, trial. Any, anyway, um, let me ask you this. One of the things that I, I find most interesting about you is, uh, your focus on finding practical ways of confronting systems of injustice and finding practical ways uh, of organizing people for real change. I know that's a big area of focus for you. Um, what, what methods, interest you or excite you most right now? What what practical methods are you kind of studying or, or trying to work on? Yeah, well, right now, you know, the things that really stand out to me are, uh, like, is the work of Gene Sharp. Um, and tell, us, he, tell us who that is. Yeah, so Gene Sharp was, he passed, like, just a couple years ago. Okay. But he has left behind... <laughs> so much for us um and so basically he started what is called the albert einstein institute and it's it's named after it got its name from a letter that albert einstein wrote to him when he was incarcerated for uh refusing to go to war wow so he was a conscientious objector and world war ii I, I think it was, yes, I think it was World War II, and Albert Einstein, and he had already struck up a kind of friendship before he'd gotten arrested. And so Einstein writes him a letter saying, you know, I I hope that if I were ever faced with those circumstances that I would have made the same decision that you made. 
But Sharp comes out of prison feeling like, yes, he took a righteous stand, but it did nothing to stop the war from happening. Right. And so he dedicated the rest of his life to trying to understand how his commitment to pacifism and nonviolence could be more than just a personal moral conviction and a personal way of life. But how could people actually change the world by strategically working together and nonviolently? So he wrote a little book called Dictatorship to Democracy that was written for actually uh, folks living in Burma under that totalitarian regime. But he wrote it in this very, in the abstract, just the principles of nonviolence and nonviolent resistance, civil resistance, what people call it. And it's been used all over the world to successfully confront dictators Mm. in Chile, in Egypt, in Serbia, in all these different places. And so I've been really digging into Gene Sharp's, I mean, a lot of people's work, but Gene Sharp's work specifically right now, because he actually is like very methodical, very step-by-step, very practical about how can, how can ordinary people oppose even a totalitarian regime? So he has a, a paper called Making the Abolition of War a, Real, a Realistic Possibility. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a tall title. Yeah, yeah. Which I just love the title. But yeah. just I think that this is like one of those things that shows even like the, the depth of his belief in how how the principles of nonviolent action work, because he's talking about people nonviolently stopping an international invasion. Like if China were to try to like take over America, he's writing about how we could stop that from happening without carrying arms. which is all which is all based on the idea of how political power is based on our obedience you know is that whatever we consent to as a mass of people is what the status quo will be and so that is really like exciting to me um because he goes through like thinking about the conflict situation that you're in in such detail like there's an outline that he makes in what's called a strategic estimate and in under the first heading, the first subheading is what is the terrain and geography of the conflict situation and how will the terrain and the geography, you know, influence the struggle? That's just the first point. But it's so helpful to think that concretely, like if we wanted to do something about the border crisis, right, like that, then you can apply that really abstract idea to, okay, where is the border crisis happening at the border? What's the terrain and geography? There's desert, there's rock, there's a wall, you know, and the that outline goes de- from terrain and geography down to how many troops does the government have? How long does it take for them to deploy those troops from the closest base to the area where, you know, like it's that concrete. So that kind of stuff really is exciting to me. Yeah, I can see that. Well, let me ask you this. Let me just do protests work. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> Protests work, but protests do a certain thing. Okay. And so, like, people think it's just because we have a very limited idea of how to right. use our power and how to resist, as we say, right? So, uh, Gene Sharp, I'm glad we're already talking about him because I don't have to introduce him again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, he, 
his contribution to nonviolent struggle is that he mapped out all of these different ways that people can oppose uh, abuses of power. Yeah. So he wrote a list of 198 methods of nonviolence, and he wrote out examples, wow. historical 100, examples. 198. 198. It's not an exhaustive list either, right? It's just these are the 198 examples of methods of things that we could do, tactics. Right. And he wrote historical examples of people using those tactics, like in specific conflict situations, revolutions around the world. Yeah. Right? And he classified those 198 methods into three groups. And the first is protest and persuasion. Okay. So that first classification of, of actions where we put protest is where all of these symbolic actions happen. And symbolic actions are meant to express our values, to express a grievance, to raise awareness about a cause, to convince other people to join, to make what was pre make some injustice that was previously invisible now visible to people. Hmm. And that's where marches and uh, tickets and all that kind of stuff, filling the streets, all that stuff fits into that classification. And so it works to do those things, raise awareness, um, convince people of, you know, it can work. What it does, what protests don't do by themselves is cause governments to behave differently or to change material conditions in society, right? You have to add different types of methods and tactics into a larger strategic plan for change yeah. in order to change material conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's key because I think a lot of people need to understand that the work, you know, cannot end at a march or a protest that, that really what we're talking about here when we talk about confronting these systems of injustice is social and political change. We are talking about power, right? We are talking about changing power structures and specifically changing leadership, installing right. leadership. I, th I think protests can help raise awareness and, and unify movements and do a lot of um, high profile things in raising awareness. But I think ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, I guess I'm, I'm creating you know, food for thought here. You know, um, we're talking about changing, changing who's in power, right? We're yes. talking about elections. We're talking about, uh, you know, um, electing or, or getting appointed the right people at both the local, state, and national level. Isn't that ultimately the goal here? Yeah, like I tell people, like you can't stop a robbery by yelling at the thief. I disagree with you. That's that's not how that works. You have to actually intervene. Right. Yeah. In order to stop a yeah. from happening or a robbery from happening. And so one one way that um, some scholars have put this, uh, some other authors have put this is we have to think of actually intervening, creating a political intervention. Yeah. And voting is a way to do that. Right. But sometimes voting is not a viable option for you, as it wasn't for black people in the 50s and, and 60s and, and before which yeah. is why their boycotting of the buses in Montgomery and the Birmingham movement of sitting in at the lunch counters and all that kind of stuff, all of that was so necessary because voting was not going to be a viable option for them. 
And the thing is, like, when people started doing this, this is like when people weren't even studying social movements. Like, right. uh, what was happening with Gandhi and in South Africa during apartheid and eventually here in the civil rights movement, these nonviolent movements, people hadn't really seen mass mass resistance in that way. Yeah. So psychologists were saying, like, oh, these people are pathological. They're crazy. Like, wow. they didn't understand... They didn't understand the sit-ins as legitimate political activity. And I think that a lot of us still don't make that connection that when we fill the streets, which should not be the first thing that we do, but when we do, um, that is legitimate political activity. You know, that is us practicing our democracy in a different way because that's our participation, saying to our leaders that, listen, we don't want, you know, I mean, in this case, I'm talking historically, we don't want segregated bathrooms, but that could apply to all kinds of different things. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. What, what what role do you think the church can play in bringing change? Well, Meaning change. Here's, here's the thing about change, social change, is that yeah. people are very, they're very attached to this idea of, the world or society will change as we convince people to change their behavior or their hearts one at a time, or as parents teach their children differently or something like that. This very small, incremental, individual type of thing. They're not entirely wrong. Like there is a part of this change that has to happen on a, a deeper level, like a, a personal level. Some might say a spiritual level, right? Uh, the, the symbolic terrain of our society has to change, where we think of the world differently. Our common sense, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Our common sense has to change, right? But um, that kind of incremental change is something that we can't always afford on every issue. You know, like we were just talking about, what's the most pernicious um, expression of racism in our society? Um, I think that a couple years ago, the statistic was like a black man, a, an unarmed black man is dies in a police exchange like every 48 hours or something like that in America at one at one point. So I don't think that when you have a case like that, where it's harming that many people that you can afford to wait for our common sense to change person by person. Right. So what people in this conversation are talking about is that we have to mobilize entire social blocks at a time, moving groups of people at a time from that space of being inactive to now being aware of the problem of being active. And the way that you can do that is through institutions, right? Yeah. And since the church is gathering groups of people at a time every Sunday, <laughs> And yeah. sometimes Sunday and Wednesday and, you know, right. other, other days, the church can um, mobilize entire groups of people, social blocks of people toward justice. And that's what we saw in the civil rights movement was the, the folks at the front of the civil rights movement were the black colleges, the black civil rights organizations and the black churches. And why is that? It's because at the beginning of a movement, there are all of these indigenous, indigenous networks, right? The churches are one of them where people are already gathering and they are, they're there for messages and all that kind of stuff. 
And what the movement, as it takes off, what it does is it co-ops all of those indigenous networks. So the church already has leaders. It already has communication systems amongst the members. They have a directory that people have each other's numbers. They know where they go to each other's houses and have, have food and all this kind of stuff. They have money. They have resources. And those things were mobilized for the support of racial justice during the civil rights movement. Yeah. We have to think that way again, you know, and so the church has this rich organizing history already, you know, not and not just the black church, although I think the black church is probably the biggest, you know, contributor to that. But but Christians and, and churches throughout our history have had a huge role in mobilizing for justice. Yeah, and that's my hope, Andre. Honestly, I I have the hope that this generation, when I say this generation, I mean millennials that are becoming what um, analysts are calling the nuns and duns, right? They're leaving these uh, these conservative religious structures because of a host of reasons, not the least of which are political, right? Not just because they're done with kind of boomer theology being completely just nonsensical to them, you know, uh, but specifically the ethical and political payload that comes along with a lot of, I think, boomer culture, you know, baby boomer culture and, and kind of um, conservative white evangelicalism that definitely is sexist, racist, homophobic, anti-science. Um, you know, in my opinion, millennials by and large are distancing themselves from uh, to a great degree, not entirely, obviously, but a lot of them are distancing themselves from these conservative institutions and looking for institutions and communities that are more meaningful and that are more socially responsible. And so my hope, and of course I'm speaking as a uh, as the pastor of a very progressive Christian community, my hope is that churches can be, I think as you put it, kind of uh, ground zero or organizational uh, uh, touch points for social movements um, and potentially real change. As millennials exit their 20s and, and 30s, um, become more um, powerful in society as they age and take take more important roles. My hope, my hope, mm-hmm. is that churches can become a lot more socially and politically active and be forces of real positive social and political change. Um, and and that that's that's my hope. Um, we'll see if it happens. <laughs> but but again, I think there already is this exodus of you know of this generation from the church because of political reasons, and yeah. and they're looking for outlets that are politically and socially responsible that are going to respond um, to again the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, the anti-intellectual, anti-science bias, climate change. They're looking for. They're, they're, they're looking for some kind of meaningful movement that will address these. And um, we'll see if the church can be a part of that. I have doubt. I have my doubts, Andre. Yeah, but- I have my doubts as well. I mean, especially when we're talking about. So we have 81 percent of evangelicals that voted for Donald Trump, you yep. know, and, um, you know, I think that there is definitely and I think in those in that kind of tradition or kind of culture like there's a theology of irresponsibility yes where there where the people who subscribe to this and it is you know it it comes from this white evangelical theology that says that you know they are that people are not responsible for what happens in history are not responsible for those for the well-being of those who live outside of their social group and 
that they are not accountable for the injustices that exist among them, especially when we talk about things like, you know, uh, white privilege and generational wealth and all of that kind of thing. And so that, that theology actually prevents them from, from participating, but that's a historical thing, right? Like Jonathan Edwards wrote, you know, his treatise to justify the first great awakening saying that it was okay for him to have, for him to keep his slave because God cares more about your soul and your spirit than your body. Right. You know? um, and so I think that, I think that there is hope. So I, I'm, that's why I have my doubts because the, the yeah. ideas don't die, you know, easily and tradition. Yeah. Um, but I have my hopes because at the same time as that, as those things, there are two things that give me hope about the church being able to do that. One is the history of, for all of those slave owners, there were Christians that were abolitionists, right? And there were Christians that walked the Trail of Tears, and there were Christians that organized for labor rights and for um, against the war, the Vietnam War, and against uh, Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff. So that gives me hope as the history. But then also, the more that I study social change and nonviolent struggle is the more that I run into Jesus, mm. <laughs> which is... It's even the people who are not Christians bring up Jesus, yeah. like Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and his teaching and his example. And so, like, even as I sometimes have felt tempted to just be an out and out materialist, um, it, not in like the economic sense, but just like, right. you know, I believe in what I can see and feel and taste and touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep running into people who. Uh, are compelled by the teachings and example of Jesus to do good in the world. And not just Jesus, but people who also just value religion in general yeah. for the good that it can do. Um, Malcolm X is one, like I'm finishing Malcolm X's autobiography right now, and it's interesting to see where he lands on what he, what he thinks is essential to confront racism. And one of those things he thinks is Islam. <laughs> oh, yeah. He believed, you know, at least near the end of his autobiography, that if more people practice the peaceful religion of Islam, that we would have less racism in the world. You yeah. know? And those kinds of things speak to me. You know, yeah. when, when Michelle Alexander decided that she was going to not just practice law, but she was going to join the faculty at Union Seminary. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the woman who wrote the new Jim Crow felt that spirituality in some way was important. Like those those things. They don't necessarily like uh, erase all of my doubts about church and spirituality yes. and its value, but it does say something to me about people on the front lines, you know, appealing and finding value in those places. Well, you've got people like Slavov uh, Zizek. Are you familiar who's, with yeah. Zizek? So Zizek would define himself as a uh, as a Christian atheist. Uh, he's he's a complete atheist. Let's be very clear about that. But he's a big admirer of 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 Christian uh, Jesus's uh, teachings and yeah. and Paul, some of Paul's writings as incendiary and 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 radical and it's and their politics. But Zizek has said before that Christianity is too important of an idea to surrender to the fundamentalists. Mm. Um, he he firmly believes as an atheist that religious structure, um, spiritual community, uh, theological language is actually an important technology for social movement and mm -hmm. affecting real political and social change, which is really interesting because, again, yeah. he, has, he has no interest, no uh, vested interest in seeing the church survive. And yet he is adamant that that religious 
community is actually something that we need to harness and use to bring real social change. And that, that's actually really interesting to me as well. And I, I know it is to you. Yeah. Uh, the, the only question is, can that power be wielded responsibly? Uh, and will it be, uh, you know, 10, 20, 50 years into the future? And there's no way of knowing because it's honestly what we're seeing with the rise of Trumpism uh, right. and the resurgence of white nationalism and fascism, uh, even outside the United States globally, you know, uh, is frankly terrifying and 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 kind of uh, apocalyptic, catastrophic oh, in some ways. Yeah. Um, with, with with that in mind, um, I wanted to mention and kind of get your thoughts about this. I, I think affluent white liberals are, are probably as big, if not a bigger force of white supremacy and white privilege as the alt-right and conservatives. Because <laughs> uh, I think, and I know a lot of white affluent liberals uh, and Christians, affluent white Christian liberals uh, are more prevalent than far-right whites, in my opinion. I might be wrong about that, but I think affluent white liberals are more prevalent. Uh, but I think they secretly harbor a lot of the same attitudes towards people of color and certainly harbor the same capitalist values that are oppressive uh, as those on the right. Um, I think white affluent liberals are just better at hiding their racism behind center-left ideology and voting for Democrats, etc. Do you see it that way? Well, I don't know if I can say that they're just as bad as the alt-right. I don't know. Because, <laughs> you know, like, quantifying. Yeah, but yeah. I will say that, like, I think that white liberals have to think very, um, so have to be very self-reflective about benevolent racism, right? <laughs> because uh, we all know that, you know, being a bigot is bad, right? That you can't walk around calling people the n-word and you know you know all the other overt right. uh, racist stuff but like you said um we live in a system that is comprehensively anti-black or exhaustively anti-black and that yields racist outcomes and saying like we said like yelling at the robber, I disagree with you, is not the same as intervening. Right. And so if you're watching it happen, <laughs> you are supporting it if you do nothing, right? Well, and you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about it's not enough just not to be racist. One has to be anti-racist. Exactly. Exactly. Anti-racism. It's not enough not just, not just to be a bigot, but one has to be anti White supremacy, anti-racism, and, and being active. Yes, exactly. Is is that you are looking for, like you are looking for those instances and looking for those expressions of racism, so that you can dismantle them. And many people are not, even though they express anti-racist values, they're taking no anti-racist action. Right. And then you have to really dig down into why. And the why is probably because. You benefit, from, you benefit from the status quo too much to actually challenge it, you know? Um, so, that's, so that's one thing that I, I definitely think is, is like the, the part of talking about how like we are the power behind the status quo. The society that we have is the society that we consent to. And so a lot of, a lot of white liberals know exactly what to say. You know, it's like a song that they've memorized by heart. You know, they, they can sing it 
you know, in their sleep. You know, you it may be stuck in your head all the time. You may be humming it in the shower. But again, those words are not doing anything about the power relations and the power dynamics. So an example, you know, we, we mentioned we mentioned the place that I worked before ESA. <laughs> yeah. and, and I only said that, Andre, because it's public knowledge. It's on your Facebook page. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. You know, but I, you know, the organization prints a lot of stuff that is justice oriented, yeah. but, but doesn't feel like it has to be intentional in its office practices about creating an environment that is um, that is not hostile toward people of color and black people, you know? And so, and you have a lot of organizations like that, a lot of churches like that, you know, um, in, in LA where we live, you know, we'll, they love to have brown faces come through their doors and sit in their chairs, but they don't have any black people preaching on Sunday morning. And then when they do, they want to have a panel discussion about race, as though black people cannot stand on stage by themselves and articulate, you know, something theologically uh, compelling or sound from the scriptures by themselves. Well, they're you scared. Know? They're scared of what's going to be what the black black mouth is going to say. Yeah, they're, they're, they're afraid of what, you know, they don't want a black person's interpretation right. that takes seriously the experience of black people, right? And so in that way, like, that is, that is, that is a form of benevolent racism is what I'm saying, yeah. right? Is that, and there's actually been a study, there's actually been studies on this, like a guy named Glenn Bracey out of Villanova talked about how, you know, um, white evangelical institutions in particular create their create their organizations as white institutional space first. It is first white institutional space. They only they only bring in white people to establish the space and to lead in the space. And then when it's when it's established, they allow people of color in, but they do what's called race tests on these on on people of color by chat by trying to make sure that the people of color that enter the space will serve the interests of white people. And uh, so, yeah. you know, someone might, uh, a black person might come in, or, or this is actually a, an example from the test. A black person goes to a small group. It's mostly white people. Um, they say, uh, well, you should get acquainted with the guys. And so all the guys leave the room with the black, with the black guy and the, and the other uh, person of color, a, a, a Latino man. And, mm -hmm. They all start talk. They they do an icebreaker, and the one guy goes, "All right, well, what's what's the fa what's your favorite item that you have?" And the first guy goes, "Well, I guess it's my gun." And you know, he talks about his gun, <laughs> and and because he started that, you know, everyone else in the room as they go around just starts talking about their guns, right? Yeah. And so this one guy uh, goes, mm, "I don't know what I would call my gun. I guess I would call it the uh, oh my gosh." I can't remember, but it was an Asian slur. So it's probably better that I don't remember because it was like something like that. And he said, because every time I shoot it, it goes chink, chink, chink. Wow. When he said that, he pointed his imaginary gun at the only people of color in the room. Right. <laughs> and everyone laughed. Now, this is that was a race test. Right. Because let's see if I can get away with something racially problematic. And if you're going to confront me. Yeah, we're going to go along with it. So I say all that to say, like, 
we have all of these different ways. I shouldn't say we. White people have all these different ways. <laughs> <laughs> By we, you mean me. <laughs> white people have all of these different ways that they uh, create and protect and defend uh, white space and white power. And one of those ways of protecting that, of protecting white space and white power is by choosing not to do anything about it, yeah. is by choosing to go along with it, is by choosing to focus on uh, oneself and say, well, I'm one of the good white guys. But all you're really trying to do is make sure that black people like you, have affinity for you. Right. But you're not doing anything to actually change the conditions that black people are talking about. The other way that, but the other way too is that uh, white liberals don't don't uh, the, that white liberals contribute to racism is that they don't realize that it's almost like white liberals give themselves a, a, a badge of honor just for holding anti-racist values. Uh -huh. you know? yeah. Yeah. So because you've already given yourself a badge of honor, you you want to live as though you've arrived and as though you don't have work to do on yourself. Um, and so we don't take seriously the idea that we live in a society that is expressing anti-blackness from every corner, right? Even black people can hold and espouse anti-black ideas. And if black people can do that, then no white person should be walking around here saying, ah, there's no way I'm racist, right? right. Like, right. like, we all inhale the smog, we all exhale the smog. Yep. And we saw this in 19... The turning point of the civil rights movement was 1964, when all of these white college students came down to rural Mississippi to work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in registering as many black people as they could to vote. And the number one complaints from the black activists, from the black activists about the white college students, the white activists that came to work with them, was that one, they were paternalistic, that they came in as white saviors, as though they had all the answers and tried to assume leadership positions, and they assumed yeah. They assumed, even in their trying to help, that their view and their skills and their vantage point and their perspectives were superior. Yeah. Right. And the second thing was racial insensitivity, and the third thing was basically uh, sexual tension. It was like a fetishization of. Sure. Yeah. You know, of of black people. And so, you know, white liberals actually need to be more self-reflective about their own biases about the way that they enter spaces, the way, that they, the way that they take up space. Are they listening to black people? Are they listening to the most affected by the problems that they, that they say that they care about? And are they doing anything? You know, are you doing anything active? Because, and this is exactly what you said, like uh, to quote Angela Davis, that it's not enough to be a non-racist, right? A non, there's no such thing as a non-racist is what Dr. Ibram Kendi would say is that you are either participating in creating an anti-racist society or you are passively or actively supporting the current racist society that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's for so many people, um, white liberals, this is this is sophisticated stuff. In other yeah. words, they live at a level where they really don't have to reflect on this level of their lives or yeah. consider that they are participating unknowingly, unconsciously participating in these racist systems and supporting it and themselves being racist in, in so doing. And, and be and telling them that is so offensive to them because because as soon as you tell them that, that you are actively participating in racism. Um, mm -hmm. they, they immediately go on the defensive, and it's 
it's so it's so difficult because it, it it depends on a certain level of empathy and humility and contrition and open-mindedness that unfortunately most people don't have and for me it's it comes down to needing to be part of a community or being in relationship with other people where these dialogues happen not just once, not just twice, but a lot. And it means reading stuff. It means dialoguing. It means it often means like a lot of things. And I compare it to spiritual deconstruction, you know, coming out of oppressive theological traditions. It takes years. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years. And in a way, you never really fully recover. You're, there's always this oppressive God in the back of your head telling you you're going to hell if you don't believe this shit. You know, mm-hmm. um, you never get rid of that God. And in my opinion, you never really as, you know, kind of a white uh, American, you never get rid of the racist guy in the back of your head. He's yeah. always there. And and it's almost like you need to kind of cope with that in, or, in order to tame it in order to um, deal with it appropriately. Um, but for a lot of people, Andre, a lot of the audience that, that are listening, they're, they're hearing all this and they're agreeing, but they're like, I, I just, it, I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> and I think it's overwhelming, but it, I think what's important to remember is, A, you're always going to be dealing with it. B, you have to constantly work work at fighting it or, or dealing with it. Um, and that takes community, that, that takes dialogue, that means reading and doing your homework, that means actively dealing with it, and then and then working with um, other people in changing the system, and that means changing people who are in power, getting the right people in power, voting for people that uh, are, are going to institute things like reparations or, or change the system systemically, economically uh, away from its, its racist uh, bent. So anyway, um, you know, I, that's it's kind of where this lives. It, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it, is, it, it is years in the, pro, in the making and, and you have to constantly fight against it. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about already was about how Common sense is a part of the thing that we have to fight to change, right? And that's a much more subtle target. It's a it's a harder target to hit, but it, it's very much entwined with our with the institutions that need to change. Yeah. And I think that white people get too upset about something that really is inevitable, you know, yeah. is that you're born into a world where the common sense is already what it is. You know, you didn't create it. You didn't choose to be a part of it. All you can do is be aware and become aware or be made aware of when you're operating by it. You know, like there are a bunch of lies in the air in our society. And I use this as an analogy. Right. Like uh, one of one of the lies is uh, is about consumerism, like this consciousness consumerism. Right. Where, you know, if you buy this thing, it will make you happy. Right. It'll fulfill you. Right. Exactly. Now, I, I actually try to be aware <laughs> of when I am buying into it because I am totally the kind of person who's like, man, like, I just, I just need a thing. I just need yep. something, to, something exciting. I just need a new experience or something. Yep. And I'm online and Instagram and Facebook and stuff now have tons of ads and they're trying to sell something to me. And so, like, I may see this, I may see this, this gadget or something or, or even a book, right, and go, man, like I could totally learn so much from that book. Now, how many books have I bought that I haven't read? And I'm barely finding time to read those things. And I actually find myself going sometimes, Andre, like you're 
you're completely buying into this idea. Like the other day we were driving to a wedding. Um, I was DJing at a wedding and um, uh, we passed by a Tesla while we were talking about the environment and all this kind of stuff. And like, and my friend was telling me, oh, like it, it doesn't run on gas and stuff. So I'm like, oh man, like that, that, so they're actually better for the environment or whatever. But I also found myself going, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> You don't have the you don't have the money or the funds for this, and there is a part of you that just thinks that driving a Tesla is sexy. You are totally starting to you're starting to buy into this lie. Yeah. I don't feel guilty about the fact that I live in a world where those things are in the air. Yeah. At any moment, I can find myself thinking according to that logic. Yeah. All I have to do is say, oh man, like. All right, I know that like this idea to like get this book or this car or this thing or this experience sounds really dope right now, but really the thing that I'm really looking for sometimes is just I'm just looking to feel happy. Yeah. I just look to feel okay. I think that when white people encounter these encounter these things like and find that you've been thinking according to a racist logic, even if it were just in that one moment, you know, it's like well, it's in the air, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you should just dismiss it or blow it off, but it also doesn't mean that you should beat yourself up or feel shame or guilt or fear about it. It's just acknowledge yeah. it. Okay, man, uh, I got to work on that, <laughs> you know? I think that's really key, Andre. This, what you're talking about is having compassion for yourself. Um, and I think that's important because when people understand that your message or the message here that we're talking about is not one of like, beating yourself up and, 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 you know, and, and, and almost like there can be like this, this kind of reverse sort of pride about like beating yourself up for being racist. And, 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 and it becomes almost like a badge of honor. Like I beat myself up all the time because I know I'm a racist and that becomes kind of in, in reverse sort of like self kind of reinforcing the problem. Right. But instead compassion can be a way of acknowledging that as you put it, this is the culture and the air that we breathe. And by simply acknowledging that you are never going to be rid of this and it is always going to be a struggle. You sign Simultaneously can acknowledge your brokenness and have compassion for yourself and in there and in thereby maybe feel more empowered to live differently, to actively live differently because there's this built in compassion and empathy that, yeah, you, this is who you are and it's and it's shitty <laughs> and this is this is the way that you're broken, but you can deal with it. You can be better. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be all right, but you're going to be okay enough. I think you can get there, you know, and I, I think that message is hopeful. And I think that's because it's hopeful, it's empowering. And because it's honest and it acknowledges that you're never going to fully arrive, this is going to always be a struggle, that that is more empowering. And does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is why, like, when you said, like, how, how Zizek says, like, that are, that these, that, that faith or religion can that Christianity can be a helpful technology for yes. social movements is that there this is what we're about I think as people who are at least tethered to Jesus in some way right that you know that we're talking about grace right we're talking about you know when it when when Isaiah says eh, we all fall, we all fall short man you yeah. know like <laughs> there are a million ways there 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 are a million ways that we are uh, unrighteous, right? In, yeah. in some ways, right? And I, in the social justice area that I've been in, like righteousness comes up and and self transformation comes up like all the time. Even Malcolm X is talking about that as a Muslim, saying like he was a hustler, he was a gangbanger, you know, yeah. uh, on the street. And he says, you know, praise Allah that he found Islam, right? Yeah. So that he could transform himself. 
And I think that, you know, as we're talking about, you know, all of these things that we do have to, we do have to grace, we have to give ourselves grace and we have to give others grace to, to grow. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not a cheap grace. It's not a grace that doesn't come with the call to transformation, meaningful transformation and accountability and criticism. It's never without that. Right. Exactly. The grace, I always think about this, like for myself, when I'm thinking about grace itself, is that like the grace that we get is the grace to do better. Yeah. It's it's not to excuse like the shitty stuff that we do. Right. Right. We get grace to try again to move forward, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, uh, I want to conclude with this question and you might not even want to answer it. And it's okay if you don't. Um, Who who do you like in the field of candidates right now? Is there anybody that interests you? It's early. I know the elections next year, but I just people interested is is Andre keyed up on anybody. Yeah, you know what? And I said that I would look into this more, and I totally didn't. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, there's grace for you, man. There's grace for you. It's all good. <laughs> I totally didn't. And so I don't really know. I mean, I really don't know. I, the thing that I'm thinking about even more than the election is what are we as a people? Because, again, we're talking when we talk about people power and social movements and nonviolent struggle, like, I, I so believe that we are the power behind the status quo and that essential to the idea of democracy is that we take on the ethic of responsibility for what happens in history, what happens in our society, and that we pursue the change that we want, even if that means that, remember that, 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 that uh, array of tactics that we talked about, of nonviolent tactics? I would just put voting on the list. It's the 199th method of nonviolent action, right? Okay. Um, so when I think about the election, I think, how are we preparing to hold our leaders accountable in the event of election fraud yeah. or, you know, something like that? You know, that, and so it may be early for people to, like, have candidates that they want to choose. And, I mean, for the record, I, I don't think any of the black ones are compelling right now. That's really okay. sad. Um, okay. But, but I don't think that it's too early for us to start thinking about how can we learn and understand our power as people to do more than vote because our democracy is in a scary place, man, you know, and we may have to do more than vote. You know, I mean, we are, I mean, already we do need to, but like, I'm with you. 20, like we may need to do more than vote. And if all we know how to do next November is March, we're in trouble.